Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Cool. So, yeah, the last time I spoke was up in Chicago. Um, we just moved back th- from there in August. and. There was no AC in the building, and it was summer, uh, one of the, like, 19 days that Chicago is warm enough to live in, and I was soaked in sweat, like, not like, oh, the guy's a little sweaty, like, people were concerned that I was maybe sick because my whole shirt was a different color, and down into, like, my pants was the sweat. Um, So if that doesn't happen, I'm considering this a win, Um, and then second win would be, like, no blasphemy, but really it's about me, so (laughs) no sweat's the first win, uh, be the most important thing. So, um, this is an awkward time to sip water, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> I, I'm pretty freelancy. I normally don't run through things that many times, but last night I was getting a little freaked out, so I ran through it, and now my voice is a little uh, froggy, and I'm nervous about it, so there's that as well. Just no filter, really. The inner monologue is what you're getting out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> So we're in the series, The Original Jesus, and we're using the Gospel of Luke to look at Jesus' life, and we're focusing essentially on his maturation. So we started with kind of his conception, his birth, his youth, um, and the idea here is to get a sense of what Jesus looks like as a role model for us, for Christian maturity. So as we're growing up, a lot of us have been in the faith for a while, um, what does it look like to continue moving closer and closer towards the Father and letting that refine not only our actions, but our character and our hearts as well. And to give you a little context about today's passage, last week, uh, Ryan, in addition to going through the riveting genealogy of Jesus, um, tying him sort of to his, his humanity, uh, we also touched on his baptism. So uh, the cuz, John the Baptist, uh, baptized Jesus in the River Jordan, and there was this moment where the Holy Spirit, um, somehow appreciably, we don't really have a, a grasp of it, but showed up and manifested in a special way, uh, sort of signaling that Jesus is, in fact, uh, chosen and approved by God, and with that was an audible voice of the Lord saying, this is my son, uh, with whom I am well pleased. So it's from that context that we're about to go into the desert with Jesus um, as he's led there by the Spirit. So I'm going to pray for us, and we'll uh, officially get rolling. Lord God, thanks so much um, for this space coming back. It just feels like home, Lord. (laughs) And I'm grateful. Speak to us today. 
through your word. Amen. Did not see that coming. <laughs> You're going to want to go ahead and practice your prayers too. Um, so uh, just because it's, let's just, let's just shake the sillies out. Can you guys stand up while we read? Um, this, uh, we're not going to shake the sillies out. Can you, st- can you stand up um, just as a, as a kind of way to honor the scriptures, um, honor the word? I'm going to read this passage. It's Luke 4, uh, 1 through 13. It's going to be on the screens because that's literally the only thing I sent in as notes. Um, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put your Lord God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The word of God for the people of God. If you know, you know. Okay. So, I think this is a cool passage. If for no other reason than when you think about where the New Testament came from, uh, if we're taking the authors at their word, we've got two disciples of Jesus, uh, Matthew and John, who are writing firsthand accounts. We've got Mark, who is sort of a surrogate of Peter. They were traveling companions. And we sort of assume that Mark's account is Peter's account. And then we've got Luke, who the good doctor was a companion of Paul. And even though he wasn't an apostle or a disciple of Jesus, he was an apostle. And Luke also mentions that he did a lot of firsthand interviewing of the people who were alive at the time. I think that's one of the reasons we have interesting, unique material in Luke about Jesus' childhood is that he likely interviewed Jesus' mother, who we know outlived him. But all that to say, these accounts and these stories of Jesus' teachings and miracles are all things that the apostles would have witnessed during their time following Jesus uh, throughout the, the countryside for three years, except a story like this, which The only way this gets to the apostles is if Jesus himself decides it's so critical and so important that he wants to share it Um, because they weren't there. It was just Jesus alone in the wilderness. And we have a record because he decided that it mattered for our faith um, that we understand what happened to him. And, And that alone to me makes it pretty interesting and pretty cool. So when I first read this, the question that immediately leaps to mind is like, Holy Ghost, what are you doing? Um, we're, I imagine like, a, like the old GPSs when they first came out and like you'd be driving and it would be like, take a left. And you're like, that's Lake Eola. I can't, I'll die. Um, 
And they would just steer you in the wrong way, like your destination is 200 miles in front of you, and you're like, no, it's 20 feet. Um, and maybe like Holy Spirit 1.0 was like a broken navigation system, like he was still kind of working the kinks out, figuring how to get Jesus around. Um, and they laughed about it later, like, hey, remember that time that you sent me out in the desert to be tempted by the devil of hell? Uh, that was a bummer. Um, yeah, but I did resurrect you from being dead, so uh, we're, we're straight. I, I don't know. Uh, they, God probably doesn't interact like that. Ryan's like, blasphemy alert. He's pressing the button. Um, it just seems weird to me that the Holy Spirit would do this and to, to figure out why, I think we need to zoom out a little bit and understand that Jesus came to redeem us individually, but he also was Jewish, um, and he came to redeem the story of Israel as well. So when we think about Israel, um, we know that they fled their captivity in Egypt on dry ground uh, through the Red Sea, which was parted by the Lord, and then they endured a period of wandering in the desert where they faced some similar temptations to Jesus, only they failed miserably on every account as uh, the Israelites were wont to do. So you can imagine this sort of crossing through water and emerging on the other side into a period of wandering in the desert. Uh, there's a very strong parallel here with Jesus being baptized in the Jordan, emerging from the water, and then going into the desert. Um, God does this all the time, and the gospel writers are uh, keen to sort of point out and structure their, their narrative in such a way that we see the parallels, that Jesus is not just redeeming individuals, he's redeeming the history of humanity uh, through his words and actions. So we, we see also that it's important from the writer of Hebrews who says that we will not have a high priest who hasn't endured the same types of temptations that we have. Um, if we're going to look to Jesus as fully God and fully man and believe that his maturity can be um, something we aspire to, it, it goes to, to assume that, that he has to have been tempted like we have. So um, as we read this, you'll, you notice that he doesn't use his supernatural power to overcome these temptations. Uh, he doesn't do anything other than be full of the spirit, which is absolutely available to you and me, uh, and rely on the word, uh, which again, absolutely available to you and me. And I think that uh, for those reasons, sort of this redemptive narrative, and then also to, to show that Jesus really is, in his humanity, able to stand up to the devil's temptation um, and therefore provide an example for us, are, are sort of the reasons the Holy Spirit does this. It's not like a prank, um, although that would be also cool and interesting to talk about. So uh, the way I like to kind of go through scripture is, is thinking, what does it mean, you know, in its original context? Like, can we get to what the author was trying to say, and then if we feel like we're reasonably sure of that, zooming out and deciding what does this mean for us uh, you know, 2,000 years later. So uh, we'll probably take a lap um, through these temptations and try and talk about them in their original context and then circle back and talk through them from the perspective of 21st century people uh, in Orlando. Uh, we, we might not go so deep as to bring Orlando into this, but because there are people listening on the podcast who may be flung all over the world. Um, <laughs> It's a really popular podcast. Uh, ZipRecruiter advertises on it. Um, no one listens to podcasts, apparently. They advertise on every podcast. That's the joke. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be here for another 30 minutes, so I'll just settle in. <laughs> the first temptation is pretty standard. Uh, we've got Luke, the doctor. Uh, he didn't go to Harvard, but um, probably like the local Galilean equivalent. And... Um, 
he, he notes that Jesus is hungry, which is interesting, I think, because if you've ever fasted for longer than like three hours, which is about how long I fast, it's just between meals, um, <laughs> you, you get hungry, but then like once you press through that, it kind of goes away. And there's this like, it's emptiness, but you're not like starving and kind of a clarity of mind comes in. That's kind of the whole point of the fasting. Um, and by kind of noting that Jesus is hungry again, Luke is saying that um, the fast is close to being over. Uh, Jesus like maybe is in danger here because he's gone so long without food. Um, and that's the window of opportunity that the devil uses to kind of sneak in and begin these temptations uh, in earnest. Now Luke, and uh, this is recorded in like one verse in Mark, indicate that these temptations were throughout this period. If you read the Matthean account, um, it seems like maybe at the very end, the devil just did wham, bam, bam, three temptations done. But I think it's more likely that Jesus was subject to temptation the whole time. So the devil comes in and says, hey, you're super hungry. Um, why don't you go ahead and just, if you're the son of God, just turn these stones into bread. Um, and what's interesting is there's, there's no like real crime here. Um, your appetite was given to you by God. So eating food, not necessarily a problem, especially when you've had 40 days of no food. Um, certainly, certainly understandable that Jesus would want to eat in some way. And there's not even a problem of using Jesus magic or what theologians call miracles. Um, he seems to have no problem later on in his ministry uh, kind of messing around with the uh, physiological nature of food and drink, like his first miracle out of the gate, uh, water to wine. That seems like kind of analogous to the stone to bread thing. Um, he also doesn't mind multiplying loaves and fishes later on. So it's not that uh, he won't ever use his miraculous power or his command over nature to do things with food and beverage. Um, so if those aren't the issue, what is the issue? And I think what Jesus senses and, and where the devil's subtlety lies is that he's suggesting you can solve your problems, um, especially your spiritual problems, with a physical solution. So Jesus' response here, uh, man does not live on bread alone, acknowledges that bread is important. Uh, implicit in that response is the idea that you do need some bread to live. Um, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, though, points to a higher calling, a higher reality, um, a different plane of existence that is in fact real and does in fact matter. Um, what Jesus assumes we have to uh, infer is that God has told him not to eat through the power of the Spirit. He knows that he is supposed to be fasting, relying on God's provision only, and that is obedience. Um, it's not an enduring moral command. It's, it's uh, something that God has said for a time and place. Like obviously don't eat can't be an enduring moral command or we'd be in lots of problems. There's a very clear parallel again to another story in the Bible and that's Adam. Uh, the devil's plan of like offer you some food and hope you F it up um, is, sorry, um, <laughs> this is a family, this is a family church. Um, <laughs> It could, have got, it could have been three letters worse. Um, <laughs> uh, but the devil's used this tactic before. He, he went to a sinless man and he said, uh, God has commanded you, you know, not to, to eat this food, but it's good, right? And if, if God really loved you, he would want you to be like him, so you should go ahead and eat it. And Adam and Eve were like, well, duh, done. Um, same thing is going on here with Jesus. That subtle if 
um, could also be rendered since you are the son of God. Um, and it's a challenge to affirm his identity as one of authority. Um, so it's a twofold temptation. One, fill your belly like you're super hungry at the end of 40 days. Two, demonstrate that you really are the son of God. If, if you had all this authority, would you be out here starving in the desert? Like, I, I have a hard time believing it, Jesus, that you were born in this podunk town, that you were chased out by a human emperor who was going to kill you. You've been toiling in obscurity for 30 years, building tables and chairs as a carpenter, and now you're out here starving with the wild beasts in the desert. Like, you're probably not the son of God. Like, that Jordan River thing, you imagined it. Uh, let's move on. And it would be very easy for Jesus to be like, oh yeah, bread, 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 um, and turn, <laughs> turn the desert into like Panera East. Um, and, and he didn't do that um, because the point wasn't to show up the devil. The point wasn't to confirm his identity. He already believed his identity. Um, he already knew his identity and he knew that it existed on a plane that was not physical, that was spiritual. And so he was able to resist the temptation. Um, Number two, bow down to me. Um, I'm going to take. I'm going to show you all the all the kingdoms of the world, and I'm going to offer you their authority. I'm going to offer you their splendor, and all you need to do is worship me. It's weird to think of this as a temptation because, like, if the literal devil of hell was standing next to me, being like, "Bow down," I think it would be very much easier for me to be like, "Well, no." Um, <laughs> than maybe some other approach, but you've got to remember that Jesus and the devil both knew scripture very well, and so they both knew what was coming for the Messiah. Um, it's recorded all throughout the Old Testament that the, the Messiah will be one who suffers. Uh, he will be mocked. He will be tortured. He will be executed. Um, he will be the scourge of the earth, um, and so what the devil's offering here is sort of an end around. Um, instead of taking the road to cavalry, you can... Um, just go this shortcut, and you don't have to suffer. You'll still get the authority. And Jesus doesn't even say, like, you don't have that authority to give. The devil does have authority, some at least. He's referred to as the prince of the air. Um, the, all throughout the New Testament, it seems to indicate that he has some sway. And instead of saying, like, that's not even your authority to give, Jesus just says, no, uh, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Uh, there isn't a way for me to serve two masters, and it's certainly not going to be you. So this idea of skirting the suffering to get to the end goal, because it was right. It wasn't wrong for Jesus to want authority and power. For us, it's probably like jacked up, but Jesus' vocation is Lord of the universe. So having the authority and the power over all the kingdoms of the earth, that's his natural place. He belongs there. Um, so again, it's not wrong to want that thing. Uh, that's his vocation. But getting there in, a, in the wrong way is the problem. The, the last one here is the devil calling Jesus up onto the top of the temple. And we have some reason to believe that this might have been a messianic expectation at the time. It's not part of any um, Old Testament scripture, but a lot of, you know, uh, supplemental stuff had bubbled up over the years. And so there's some who believe that they would have expected the Messiah to reveal himself at the top of the temple as sort of like a triumphant aha moment. And what's going on here is a little bit twofold. One, the devil again is kind of playing this if you are the son of God card. Uh, so calling into question his identity. Um, he's asking him to prove God. So uh, God has said this thing. Why don't you test it and see if it's real um, so that God can be proved? And as an outcome of that, 
the temple's a very busy place in Jerusalem, and if a guy were to fall off it and be miraculously saved by angels, he would probably earn some street cred. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you want people following you around who were already bought in because they'd seen this miraculous uh, salvation? You, you jumped off and you were saved by angels. I don't know if they would be visible, invisible. I don't know if they'd be the freaky angels that you're scared of or like the nice one with the wings. Either way, you'd be saved and you would jumpstart your ministry. So I can see the temptation here. Like the devil even at this point brings in scripture, which is so conniving. He does, again, like in the garden, omit a key piece of the scripture. It's from Psalm 91 if you want to go look it up. Um, and again, Jesus just, he understands what's at stake and responds, don't put your God to the test. Um, sort of echoing, uh, again, the way the Israelites failed um, by putting God to the test. He knows that to test God isn't an act of faith. It's a lack of faith. And um, there, there is, a, again, a higher calling. And um, he's willing to put his trust there. So uh, we've got these three things, these three temptations. Um, I feel like they're not totally straightforward, but we have a decent grasp on them. Uh, what do they have to do with us? Because we, again, are not going to be standing in a physical desert, fasting for 40 days, like duking it out with Satan. Um, a couple of things emerge for me that I think are applicable in our day and age, and we'll try and talk about them in the next 14 minutes and 14 seconds. How accurate is that? Pretty accurate. Oh, boy. All right. Um, here we go. Um, so, number one, and this is, this is kind of free. I didn't necessarily mean to put this in here, but um, Jesus uses Scripture every time, very obvious, um, that he knows Scripture well enough to call it up when he needs it. Memorizing Scripture, not a bad way to kick off your day. I don't do this often enough. My only, like, um, real scripture memory thing other than John 3.16, which like I think almost all of us know because of culture. Uh, I was running one time with uh, my InterVarsity campus staff workers, like a pastor, and I was like about to vomit. And he was like, hey, have you ever memorized scripture? And I'm just like, ah, ah, what are you talking about? Um, and he said, let's memorize Philippians 3.14. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me, called me heavenward. And so we worked on that for like a mile and I finished the run without stopping and then vomited. Just kidding, I didn't. I maybe did, I don't remember. Um, but the point is like, that's a pretty base application for that text, like finishing your run and having that be the prize. It's obviously not what Paul meant. But um, I can't tell you how many times, um, for whatever reason, that's in the core of my soul. I memorized it while running uh, and it was one of my first exercises ever in scripture memorization. I've done some sense that have like not landed so deeply that they're, I had them for a while and now they're gone. But I will say this, there have been countless times when some sort of temptation or some sort of thing has faced me. I felt under spiritual attack. And the only thing I have is Philippians 3.14 and the memory of Bob Fraser covered in sweat with short running shorts being like, I press on towards the goal. And me being like, I press on towards the goal. And be like, to reach the price, to reach the price. And, and I say it and somehow that helps pull me through. So I will just say, Lent is coming up. When you take something away, if you choose to fast, um, it will backfill with something if you're not intentional about picking something else up. So um, it's really cool. It's not, it's not like a law. You don't have to practice Lent. But if you're going to give something up, consider picking up something else um, to fill that place. And if you want it to be, try and memorize like a verse of scripture a week. And I think you will see transformative results. So if nothing else, pragmatic word from Steve. Bless. Um, <laughs> the other thing that we want to talk about here is these temptations. I've alluded to this already, but they're not bad. 
They're not bad things. For Jesus to want power and authority, good. He deserves power and authority. He's the king of the universe. To want to eat when you're hungry, good. God gave you your stomach and your brain impulses and uh, the ability to chew, like, fine. Um, the, the desire, I would say some of the fame desire is to be noticed and to have people acknowledge you. Um, that's fine too. That, that's the seed of community. And to, to have faith in God, to believe that he is who he says he is, to trust in him, that's fine too. Um, the problem is how we're going about it. That's the difference between walking in God's footsteps and sinning. It isn't like good things and evil things. It's usually good things and getting good things in bad ways. Um, there are some inherently evil things, but by and large, the people um, who are actively trying to follow Jesus aren't the ones who are going after the things that are inherently evil. They're just going after good things in slightly weird or wrong ways. So number one, um, this temptation to eat bread. For us, like, we don't have the ability to magically make bread out of things, so it's not a temptation. The real temptation here is to believe that something in the physical world can solve a spiritual problem for you, because it can't. Um, and the devil is tempting us with this all the time. The predominant worldview in our culture right now is naturalism, which says, if you believe in anything outside of the five senses and what can be demonstrated in the laboratory, you are an insane person at worst and an idiot at best. Um, it is absolute foolishness, it can't be proven, and you are superstitious, so you don't get a seat at the table when we talk about reality because of the things you believe. Now, what Jesus knew and what I know and uh, hope to act on as much as possible is that that is actually a load, that there is a spiritual reality, there is a spiritual dimension, and the things that we need to thrive as humans can't actually be met with physical things. They can't actually be filled with something you can hold and taste and touch. The, the world around us is good and God made it so, but there is no way that it is delivering us from things like loneliness or sorrow or lack of purpose. Um, we need something bigger than that. Um, uh, I have like illustrations and I'm nervous about time. I will say that one of my biggest shortcomings is that I absolutely don't believe God. When he says, I have self-worth. And one of the ways the devil tempts me is by showing me all these ways that will deliver a fleeting moment of that or uh, a cheap version of that. And... Um, it's very easy for me to get sucked into not just thinking about the temptation, but uh, following through on it, and then uh, realizing that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy for me. Um, oh, look what you've done. Of course you would. Um, thankfully, like, through strong community, counseling, um, a godly wife, etc. I think the Lord has shown me some of these patterns 
some of these things that were subconscious up until like my mid-20s are now conscious and I'm aware of them enough to reject them, but they still exist in sort of that junk drawer of your mind. So instead of being the subconscious thing that's ruling you, uh, you now know about it and it exists as a temptation. Um, and, and the way to beat that is again to remember uh, that just like Jesus, there is a second uh, plane of existence in addition to the physical reality that is more important um, and is truer and more real. And you can stake your claim there and trust that you will be delivered. So uh, keeping going, testing the Lord. We're going to do the jumping off the temple now because I think that was the original order. I had a reason why, but I'm not going to tell you because we have seven minutes left. So we're going to deal with that. Um, testing the Lord, I don't think, uh, again... I just had a student once who spent five hours of a six-hour retreat of silence praying for water to come from a rock um, when I was in ministry. And it's just like, he was like, I was so sure it was going to happen because I have faith and I believe that the Lord could do it. And I'm like, you spent five hours trying to recreate, like replay God's greatest hits from the Old Testament of miracles? Like, <laughs> that's not a good use of your time unless he specifically told you to do that, which he didn't. Um, I mean, did he? No. Okay. I didn't think so. Um, I assume he didn't. Um, that's typically not what we're doing. That guy was uh, for sure on the charismatic left end of the spectrum. And uh, like, bless his heart, but uh, that's, it's typically not the way we're testing God. I would say the way it looks for us is more that bargaining. Like, God, can you do this to let me know that this is okay? Or if you don't want me to do this, can you act in this way? Or um, if you're really there, do this thing. And what all that's saying and the reason it's a problem is that we're saying... Uh, God, I demand you to be more compelling. What you've done up to this point is not quite enough for me. So because I matter so much, can you intervene in the world specifically uh, to, to put a cherry on top of what you've already done? And that is an absolute lack of faith. Now, I'm not saying having uh, doubts or having a lack of faith is, is the issue, um, like we're allowed to be unsure, but I would say lean into what God has done. Lean into the community around you, lead into his word, lean into prayer rather than uh, asking him to perform for you. The uh, man has such a good story that I'm not going to tell. Um, all right, all right, all right, all right. Um, so uh, the other piece of this, jumping off the temple to kickstart uh, your ministry to get notoriety, to get um, acknowledgement. That is something that we hunger for. Whether or not we hunger for actual fame, like we as people really want to be noticed. And we really want people to think, wow, um, you bring something to the table. You're valuable, you're cool. Um, when I went to college, I went to college in New Orleans and um, a friend of mine had a little brother who was in high school with a kid on a basketball team who lived in the same neighborhood as a super famous rapper. Um, so, the rapper's name was Birdman. Anybody know Birdman? Gator boots and the, okay. Um, so this is like 2002. He was super famous then. He's kind of like, and I think now he works at like Popeyes. Um, but back then he was a really big deal, like A minus. Like you could talk about him in the same vein as like Jay Z and Eminem and, and all those guys. And so this guy Leonce lived next to Birdman, and Leonce was like, "Hey, you guys could come over sometime because I know Bird." And we're like that's a weird thing um, for, for us to do, but we would love to. Just let us know. And so one, one day, Leon's calls. He's like, yo, Bird's having a party. 
it's come on over. And so these, the whitest guys you know, uh, get into the car and like I remember thinking about my outfit and somehow I'm sure, I, I don't know, but I'm sure I landed on like khaki shorts and a polo. Um, <laughs> and uh, we go over there and like, immediately we know it's a problem because the, the driveway is like this half circle with a fountain in the middle and there's like escalates, there's a stretch hummer, everything has rims that are still spinning, uh, defying the laws of physics and it's just a 2002 rap car bonanza. And Leonce is there, we get out, and we're in like a Corolla. And so we get out, and Leon's is like, hey, we're gonna go around the side. And we're like, all right, all right, that's cool. Leon's knows him so well, we just go in the side door. And there's like stuff in the yard, like it looks like construction stuff. And he's like, can pick up some of these pipes? And so they're like PVC pipes. And we're like, okay, I guess, you know, it's neighborly, we'll help him out, like move the pipes inside. And then uh, he, he's like, put the pipes down, pick up these waters and act like you're taking a break. And we're like, Leonce, <laughs> is this cool? Are we pretending to be the crew here? Because in the corner of the room is Birdman himself shooting a music video with girls in bikinis and lights. There's a pool. Uh, everything is going crazy. And we're sitting here like holding these waters. And Leonce is like, it's cool. It's cool. But we're going to go to the kitchen. And so we're like, ah, further up and further in. Um, and so we're in the kitchen now. And my friend Harv is just like, immediately opens the fridge and you would not believe, actually they're just like us, celebrities. He had like food and condiments. Um, <laughs> but on the table there was a silver briefcase full of $100 bills. Uh, we thought immediately like, what is happening? And it was the fake music video money, naturally. Uh, we didn't want to be seen in this guy's kitchen so we wandered into the next room which was the living room and there was the proverbial, like that's where the party was, record scratch moment, like And everyone there is like, who are these people? And they just, after a couple beats, conversation starts back up. And um, we're standing there looking around. There's gold records on the wall. Birdman's house is pretty cool if you've seen the MTV Cribs because instead of a couch in his living room, he has a hot tub. Insane, giant hot tub in the middle of his living room. Um, there's New Orleans rappers all over the place. Like, it's just bizarre. And after a couple minutes, Birdman comes in. Leonce goes over. And, and he points to us and then he comes over and we're like trying as hard as we can to be cool. So like I give daps instead of like a standard. But then he gets to the end of the line and my friend Ben goes, hi, I'm Ben. Um, and just like he's gonna eat a power lunch with the guy later on in the week. Immediately after meeting us, Birdman's like, well, we're gonna do some stuff so y'all gotta go. And we're like, absolutely, that's what we were thinking. We, we're out right now, we're gone. And the reason I tell that story, one, is just because it's super fun and I met a rapper and uh, it was one of the most awkward experiences in my life. But two, because we were willing to trespass in a stranger's house after driving 30 minutes across town just to be in the glow of reflected fame of someone who was not even important five years later. Um, and, and what that says to me is that we want to be noticed, we want to be acknowledged, um, and there's so many ways to get that, and there's so many ways to do that, but the way of Jesus is to take a back seat intentionally, to become the least, to become the last. The reason uh, his message endured wasn't because he was so assertive and he was taking down people left and right and establishing his brilliance and and claiming what was his, it's that he was uh, subversive towards the culture by serving and by putting himself last. And um, that, that notion that you want to be acknowledged for who you are and for what you can do and, and be seen, um, 
there's ways to get that, um, but the primary way is to look to the Lord who sees you every day, every minute, um, who acknowledges that you have value every day, every minute, um, and rest in that so that when you go out into the world, you aren't so desperate for it that you do something damaging to yourself and other people because you don't need it so badly because it's already been put into place by the one who gave you those desires in the first place. The last one, uh, bow down to me. We are rarely tempted to bow down to the physical Satan of hell. Um, it's just not a thing that happens in our day-to-day lives. Instead, we get this subtle invitation to make ourselves the most important thing for a brief moment, a window in time. Um, I, the, the most mundane expression of this I can think of um, ran a red light camera. The letter comes to the house. You're an idiot. You ran a red light camera. Give us $100. Instead of saying something to my darling wife, I just take the red light camera, ticket, pay it on the internet, throw it away. Um, not that big of a deal, right? Ticket gets paid. No one needs to know. The problem is, what, what have I done here? In this instance, I have sacrificed honesty and trust, uh, something that has taken us 13 and a half years to build. Um, it doesn't destroy it, but it definitely chips away at the foundation for the sake of peace. Now, peace is a good thing. Um, it's not wrong to want that in a marriage, but I was so worried that I would disrupt the peace that I decided to um, sacrifice the honesty. And it's, it's that type of thing. Happens in a moment. Could, you could even miss it if you're not looking for it, where the devil says, the thing you want is fine, and the ends justify the means. So just take this small detour around what you know to be the right thing, and then you'll get back on the path and you'll be fine. The problem with that thinking is, there is no such thing as no Lord. You can't say it. It's an oxymoron. If, if Jesus is Lord, you are saying, yes, Lord. Uh, as soon as you say no, he ceases to become Lord because the Lord is someone that you are obedient to. So if you're saying no, the next thing out of your mouth is a uh, spiritual example. No uh, old wise person of history. No um, one of many religious leaders who has taught kind things. Uh, there isn't such a thing as no Lord. And so when the devil gets you, even in that instant, to turn your back and say no Lord and yes to yourself, that is satanic. If that's distasteful to you, I'm sorry, there aren't really a lot of options. Um, and it doesn't mean that like, again, you have no worth or no value or that uh, you're irredeemable or whatever. It just means in that moment, you've chosen one time to turn to go around the hard thing for the sake of something good, in our case, peace and a lack of fighting about running red lights and money. Um, but the ends don't justify the means. Um, the way of obedience is a hard road um, and it's one of submission and it's one of suffering, unfortunately. That's one of the only promises that's so clear throughout the New Testament is that following Jesus is going to be hard. And if it's not, we're probably... Uh, following it too far of a distance to feel the hardness. Um, the, the last piece is, is kind of a fourth temptation that's woven throughout all of this, and it's identity. The devil says, if you are the son of God, uh, if you are who you say you are, things would look differently. He does this temptation, and the pivot is incredible. The guy is a master strategist, and I'm not going to be gender neutral. It's definitely a guy. 
because uh, he's such a dick. Um, <laughs> sorry, family uh, thing, just such a jerk. Um, with Adam and Eve, he said, God loves you and God uh, has provided this great garden for you and he wants you to be happy, so take this thing that's obviously good. Um, that, that shows who you are, that shows your identity. And they're like, yes, we take it. Immediately upon taking it, now instead of God knows your identity, it's, it's you are so terrible for taking this thing. Um, the switch, once you give in to the temptation, it, it's, the devil pivots on a dime and his accusation goes from being take this thing, you deserve it, to I can't believe you took the thing, you piece of crap. Um, and that's why running and fleeing from temptation is such a big deal. And the only way to do it, it seems, is to have your identity rooted in Christ. To have your identity so rooted in God. And, and when I say identity, what I'm talking about is um, your purpose and your value. Um, your your reason for living, like the thing that you are trying to achieve is rooted in your identity, and the reason you uh, matter is also rooted in your identity. And we outsource that a lot. Um, we put that in money, we put that in relationships, we put that in titles, we put that in our work. Um, this country says very clearly to every one of you, your value is tied to your economic value. So whatever you have put out, that is how much you are worth. That is a stone-cold lie from the pit of hell. Some of you believe that your value is hinged on human relationships, that if XYZ person doesn't love, respect, trust, want to date, want to marry, uh, then somehow your value is in question. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Uh, God has seen you. He knows you. He has looked into the parts of your heart that you would not tell your best friend about. He has examined that. He has thought about it. He has processed it. And he still says, you're my daughter. You're my son. I want you. My arms are open. My ear is open. Speak to me. Talk to me. Know me. Your value is established because you have my thumbprint on you. You look like me. You sound like me. You think like me. That's why you're worth something because I am worth everything and you look like me. Your purpose is not to achieve some sort of financial end. It's not to um, feel good about yourself. It's to love me and to know me. That will be the engine that drives everything else. And the reason we have to flee temptation is because that one moment of turning to the side for the sake of something that seems all right and probably is good, but we're going about it in the wrong way, the devil uses that to immediately cut out our legs and, and cause us to question that identity in Christ and, and causes us to believe that we don't have acceptance from God, that we have to now somehow work hard to get back. And, and some of us, and I put myself in this camp, believe that there is no going back. You've gone too far. You are not redeemable. Um, maybe someone out there like messed up once and they, they apologized to God and God brought them back in, but you are so far gone. What are you even doing here? Don't believe that. Flee from temptation so that that is shown to be the obvious lie that it is. Flee from temptation because the devil is trying to tell you a lie that you don't have worth, 
that you can solve your problems by finding something in this physical world and grabbing it at all costs. And it results in disaster. It results in loneliness. It results in this feeling that you're distant not only from God, but from everyone else around you. And um, no good comes from it. And, and the Lord is offering so much more. Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, through the strength of the Word, resists the devil's temptation. And um, that is available to us. He is our example. He is the one who shows us what it looks like to be fully human. And it doesn't take supernatural powers. It takes an understanding of our identity, believing that what God has said about you is true, which is super hard, um, and moving forward, wanting to know him more. Um, I hope that that lands, uh, if this week or today or this next five minutes, you have some time, I would reflect on, are there ways that I'm constantly tempted? Are there ways that the devil has an inroad, a window, and what does that look like? It's probably not bowing down and worshiping him, but where are the times that I've been tempted to turn and go around obedience? And maybe that's become a pattern. Um, maybe that's become a way of life. And I wanna say again, it's not too late. Nothing is solidified. Um, God will welcome you with open arms. Uh, you don't even have to like figure it out before he welcomes you. Like you don't have to get it right. Just say, here I am, um, and begin the journey of repentance. Because temptation is, is ultimately just something that is a, a roadblock, but, but it's defeatable. It's, it's something that Jesus has given us the power through the Spirit to, to overcome. And um, yeah, the other side of that is glorious. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, thanks for being our example. Thanks for uh, undergoing temptation in the desert, uh, specifically so that you could show us that it was possible, specifically so that you could redeem the narrative of Adam, redeem the narrative of Israel, and demonstrate that um, your love is enough to sustain us in the face of temptation, even temptation from Satan himself. I pray that your word, the truth of your message to us, that we are sons and daughters who are loved, whose value and purpose comes from you instilling it in us. Uh, I hope that would sink in, would help us to lead lives that are a little bit different than the world around us um, in the face of ideological challenges and um, just the messiness of our culture today that we would be people of peace, people at peace with ourselves, at peace with you, and that peace and joy would um, be an attractive thing to those who are lost and hurting and broken. Um, God, we worship you and we lift up your name. We give you glory and honor and praise. Amen. So we take communion every week at this church. Um, it's a simple act. And uh, it's one that's been going on since the start of the Christian community. Um, the night before he was crucified, Jesus gathered together with his friends, people he loved most in the world, his disciples, and um, they had a meal together. And 
he symbolically passed around a loaf of bread and said, eat this bread, which is my body, it's broken for you. Again, he took the wine they were drinking and had them pass it around and asked them to drink the wine, uh, saying that it was his blood which was poured out on their behalf. Um, so we do this as, as a way to remember uh, the pivotal moment in human history where Jesus, who had sustained the devil's temptations without sinning, um, who had led a life of glory to God, who deserved nothing but praise and honor and worship, um, was submitted to torture and mockery and death. Um, we remember that and we honor his sacrifice and we glory in the hope of the resurrection to come that shows Jesus had power over dominion and death. So if you could, uh, if you want to partake, um, come forward, front rows to back, um, take a piece of bread, dip in the juice, and um, reflect on the Lord's sacrifice for you. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.